Welcome to the All In for Citrus podcast, the latest on citrus research from the University of Florida Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences statewide citrus team in partnership with Southeast Agnet Radio Network. Welcome to another episode of the All In for Citrus podcast. We're going to have some fun today, talk about a project from several different angles uh, with each, each researcher. They'll be joining us here virtually to talk about a new project that's looking at uh, possibly some new uh, recommendations for young citrus trees, new plantings. Before we get to that, we're going to start as we always do with Center Director, Dr. Michael Rogers. Dr. Rogers, how are you, sir? Uh, doing fine. Thank you, Taylor. We're talking about this project today that's looking at this kind of whole systems approach of a problem. And and, and let's talk about that idea because we're, we're really transitioning to projects that do this, right? Because there's several different factors that need to be looked at. Yeah, absolutely, Taylor. And we, we've come a long way in, in the time that we've had HLB here in Florida. Um, when you think back at when we first got started doing research on to citrus greening disease, uh, there were there were a lot of projects funded that were very um, that covered a, a wide range of topics. Um, you know, our growers through the Citrus Research and Development Foundation (CRDF) they funded a lot of work um, trying to look at you know what is the best approach, what are what are the areas where we can make the most progress in controlling this disease. A lot of that research led to some good things. Some of the research led to things that we could, you know, rule out. Okay, that's not very useful. And so now we've got, we're really narrowing down things that, you know, that are of use to growers right now. And we're fine tuning those, um, those practices to make them more and more applicable, more useful for growers right now. So um, we've come a long way in, in, in what seems like a lifetime for us in Citrus, but it's really been actually a relatively short amount of time uh, that we've, we've done all this. And um, so again, you know, now we're, we're starting to put all the pieces together um, and develop these integrated approaches, uh, really focusing on things that, okay, what can growers do now? Because w- there have been two focuses of our research. It's one is what can growers do now to keep us in business? And the other, other aspect is, you know, developing these long-term solutions to HLB, which will help us down the road. But, but for our, our industry right now and for our growers, everybody's focus and everybody's concern is, you know, what can I do now in my groves to stay in business until those long-term solutions are developed? Yeah, and we'll hear from uh, Dr. Diepenbrock, who's leading the project, uh, to talk about th- that there wasn't a, a real look at citrus trees, young citrus trees, new plantings in the face of HLB. And, and sometimes those practices need to be modernized anyways. So being able to look at it as a whole, and you're right, I think find applicable uh, reasonable solutions that growers can use. That's the whole point, right? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's interesting how things evolve as we as we work and we learn more about a system. And and most of the growers, at least in Florida, know that you know before I was in more of an administrative role, I was an entomologist working on psyllid and psyllid management here in Florida. And you know we were looking at just basic ways to control the psyllid, keep psyllid populations low, to try to control the spread of of citrus screening disease. And, you know, about the time that I, I transitioned into administration, you know, the question that was out there hanging unanswered was, OK, well, we've got citrus greening spread throughout all the groves across the state of Florida. Is there any value in continuing to control psyllids? You know, all the trees already have the disease. Why control psyllids? And so it seems like, a you know, a, a case where you'd say probably there's probably not much value, no need to control psyllids anymore. Well, you know, we've now we're now learning through the work that's continued from Dr. Lucas Stolinski's program. 
that there is indeed a, a value to continue to control psyllids, even though you're, all the trees in your grove may be infected. And, and that was a, a topic that was discussed um, back on April 6th at the Citrus Institute that's put on by our, our uh, citrus extension agents. And, you know, in, in Dr. Stalinsky's talk, and I would encourage folks to, if you didn't get a chance to listen to it, go online to the Citrus Agents website, view the presentation for yourself. Um, you know, the website is, is citrusagents.ipis.ufl.edu. But, you know, in, in Dr. Stalinsky's uh, presentation, you know, he talked about the work they did looking at, uh, are there thresholds of psyllids? Is there a certain level that we can tolerate? You, you know, what he, what he was showing is that, it's the stress that every time that the psyllids feed on the trees and are re-inoculating, it, it's stress, it's added stress on the trees. And he was actually able to talk about how they tied um, uh, the number of psyllids and psyllid control tactics to um, an increase or conversely decrease, if you weren't doing enough, in, in citrus yields. So, you know, he's actually taking it now to the next step, looking at, you know, the cost-benefit analysis. And that, that bottom line, that's really what growers care about is because it's about are we making money at the end of the day? Are we doing the right things that pay off long term? And, and we're really getting down to that level now uh, here in our research here in Florida on very specific things that we're doing and, and fine tuning those to make them most effective for growers. Yeah, bottom line is the key word there. Uh, you talked about the Citrus Institute in that video. That's not the only video, right? They're all the videos are now available online. Yes, they they are all online now, and uh, there are a number of, of topics. Um, Silicon control, obviously, was one of those. Dr. Stalinsky. Um, uh, everybody knows uh, Dr. Javad Qureshi. I talked a little bit about psyllid biocontrol. Um, there was some actually some new information. If, if folks haven't heard uh, Dr. Larry Duncan talk recently. Um, our nematologist, you know, it, we've been in this drought of nematicides, new nematicides for, for decades now. There's not been a lot of new products out for for nematode control. And so Dr. Duncan talked a little bit about sting nematodes. Um, he talked about some new products they're testing, which they're not available just yet, I don't believe, but uh, they will be coming soon. And he had some really promising information, not only about some of these new nematicides for, for nematode control, um, but also just some general information about using cover crops and what you could do in row middles to actually control things like sting nematode, which has been a problem. And he talked about how sting nematode problems have increased because of HLB and, and what's happening in our groves. So it's, it's really interesting to listen to Dr. Duncan um, provide that information and, and write some recommendations and, and know that there's a lot of new stuff coming out about nematodes, uh, which is uh, really, really helpful for us. Um, Dr. Diepenbrock uh, talked, there's a little bit of information for those growers who are um, still dealing with Lebeck Muleybug. Uh, she's got some new information about Lebeck Muleybug, some of the products they're testing and, um, uh, you know, some of the work that's going on. And, and also, uh, you know, talking about young trees, which I think we'll hear about a little bit later on, um, Fernando Alvarez, Dr. Alvarez at, at the Immokalee Station in, in um, Southwest Florida Research and Education Center in Immokalee. Um, he uh, talks a little bit about the his research on the individual protective covers for trees. You know, it looks like the bags that go on the trees and what he's seeing there that's really promising in terms of helping get young trees established. And, and then some of the work he's doing, um, looking at uh, the brassnosteroids and how that can also help out and get those trees established once the bags come off. So, and then, and then lastly, we also had a, a, a talk um, from Ramdas Kanissari, one of the, uh, our weed scientists uh, at the Immokalee Station. We're talking about trying to reduce cost and cut cost. He talked about ways to 
cut back possibly on some of our needs, our need to continually mow the row middles and, you know, using both mechanical mowing and chemical mowing with, with reduced rates of herbicides and, and how you can actually uh, cut some cost and savings there. So uh, I think overall, you know, you see the, the talks that we're, we're giving and, and the, the information that's coming out in, in both the Institute and some of our other big events this year, we're really trying to focus as much as we can on things that growers can do now, because again, you know, we're looking at, trying to get that useful information out, um, keep people, keep keep it at the front of growers' minds on what you can do now just to, to cut cost and, and be more efficient in citrus production. A perfect example of that is the tip of the week that you guys are doing with Citrus Industry Magazine. Um, what's the idea behind that? Same thing is uh, pretty much just actionable data that growers can use now? Yeah, absolutely. And it's been, it's been great to work with uh, Southeast Agnet on this because this is online um, on Southeast Agnet's website, the Citrus Industry Magazine website. And each week we have um, a tip of the week. It's a, it's a very short article that's written by one of our specialists. And it's not just HLB. Um, you know, keep in mind, before HLB hit Florida, there was lots of other things we had to worry about here in, 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 in our citrus industry. I mean, whether it's rust mite, I mean, for me as an entomologist, I think of rust mites, diapreppies, leaf miner, things like that. And, and there's tons of other topics as well. And so that's the point of the tip of the week is to keep um, the, of these other issues you have to be thinking about in, in mind because we, we tend to hyper-focus on HLB, but there's other things that are important. And in the tip of the week, um, those are things that should be you should be thinking about as a grower at that time of the year or that, that particular time of the month. And so we're trying to make it very uh, useful and timely and, 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 you know, very short articles that are recommendations on things you can do now. Um, and so we hope that the growers will find that useful and, and, and will actually visit that, that website very frequently to, and stay in, stay in touch on, you know, what they can do now in their groves. Yeah, good good uh, subjects here. You can find it at citrusindustry.net under the grower resources on the menu. It's tip of the week and and just some of the subjects here is tackling weeds after composting, planning for phytophthora, uh, scouting for scale and mealybug crawlers, and checking for nematodes. So you're right. A lot of other stuff going on besides HLB. We know that's the big one, but there's a lot of other stuff going on. Hey, uh, National OJ's Day is coming up. Uh, May the 4th, the unofficial Star Wars holiday is also <laughs> National OJ Day. Uh, you guys doing anything for that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And in the past several years, we have um, uh, got onto social media um, through our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram accounts. If, if anybody uh, uses those, those social media outlets, we encourage you to follow along with us on May the 4th. Um, I know it's not just IFAS uh, that will be posting stuff. Um, the Florida Department of Citrus gets very involved, as do other industry, citrus industry groups. But, um, you know, we'll be, we'll be posting a lot of things throughout the day on those media outlets, those, those social media outlets. Pictures from our employees, our faculty, our staff, um, you know, toasting with a, with a glass of orange juice. And it's a lot of fun to do it, but Again, we're also trying to get the word out to the population as a whole, to society, you know, that, that orange juice is a, a healthy drink, raise awareness of orange juice, because we, we do want to keep that awareness up. Uh, we see the consumer demand up and down quite a bit. And, and this is just one thing that we can do as an industry to help promote um, orange juice consumption and keep that demand high. So I would encourage everybody on May the 4th, that's Tuesday, May the 4th, to get into your social media accounts if you're on that. Uh, and participate, you know, with a picture of you with a glass of orange juice or uh, just follow along as we do that and, and promote orange juice. 
Very good. Exciting to uh, bring on these researchers here now to talk about this project. Again, thanks you for all the information. UF IFAS Citrus Research and Education Center Director, Dr. Michael Rogers. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to do things a little different today for the All In for Citrus podcast, and that is we're going to talk about one project, but that's because there's a bunch of different minds on this research uh, project, starting with the lead, which is the Assistant Professor of Entomology and Extension Specialist, Lauren Diepenbrock. Lauren, first and foremost, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, You're very welcome. Glad to be here. Uh, This is going to be kind of interesting today. We're going to have the team virtually join us here in a minute, but this is one project we're looking at. Uh, got kind of a long name. You guys call it Young Citrus, but what is this officially and what is it looking at? The official title is Establishing Healthy Citrus Plantings in the Face of Persistent HLB Pressure. So essentially our goal is to help come up with some guidelines to help growers establish new plantings where they've decided to replant their fields um, using some of the tools that growers are already implementing that we have zero guidelines on. And those tools include reflective mulch, which is essentially reflective plastic ground covering, kind of like what you would see in peppers or strawberry, except it's metallicized. And so the idea there is that it creates a visual deterrent that confuses certain pests. Hopefully, psyllids are one of those pests. Individual protective covers, which are the, the tree bags that people can use to cover new trees. We do know that they deter psyllids because of how psyllids move around, but we don't know what it does for other pests or other concerns that growers are going to have in managing their groves. Um, And kale and clay, which is a clay, particle clay that gets sprayed onto trees. And Christopher Vincent, who's one of our team members, has done some really nice work looking at this kale and clay, and it does show potential to be a deterrent to psyllids, which could hopefully prevent HLB from getting established in these young trees before they're productive. And then we also have our current grower standard, which is going to be a bare ground system that gets regular insecticide treatments, which is what we recommend at the moment. Um, And then we have untreated control plots that get no treatments unless they get a serious issue. And then we will treat them just so that they don't have issues that spill over onto our other plots. Sounds pretty comprehensive. Uh, And you mentioned the grower standards. So the current guidelines that we have Uh, are just basic replanting guidelines. They're not really in the face of HLB, right? Right, right. So all those guidelines were actually done pre-HLB. And it's kind of what we've done. And most of the insecticide-based part of it is going to be soil drenches, which our soil drenches, all except for one, are uh, neonicotinoid-based. And we know that we've had a lot of problems with insecticide resistance from those neonicotinoids. And so that means we really need some new tools. And growers are trying to use these new tools, but when they ask for help, we don't know what to tell them. So we're hoping that through this research, we will be able to give our growers some evidence-based guidelines to help them be successful. Very good. The team is now joining us virtually, of course. Uh, Let's go ahead and introduce the team. There's uh, four members plus yourself, and uh, we'll kind of get an idea of what each one are talking about. Sure. Our first team member is going to be Megan Dudney. Hello. Dr. Dudney is looking at above-ground pathology questions in relation to each management tool. And then we have Evan Johnson. Hello. Thanks for having me. Evan is looking at below-ground plant pathology questions, so things that impact roots like Phytophthora. And then we have Davy Kadyampakeni. Hello. Davy is looking at soil and irrigation needs of these different programs. And finally, we have Christopher Vincent. Hello. 
Christopher is looking at tree growth parameters in relation to all these different tools. Great. Sounds like you have a great team to look at this. Um, and we'll get into each section with them here in just a minute. But first, uh, this is that's what you're kind of looking at here is all encompassing. Um, you mentioned to me before we started recording that, you know, growers don't look at just one issue, one pest, one problem. They need to see how that impacts the whole orchard. And that's what you're really looking at here. All encompassing research. Yes, we're looking at that question and also considering that when growers are replanting their tree, their fields, they also have a budget. And so we want to be able to make recommendations that also fit within their budgetary needs. All right. Well, let's get into um, some of the parts of this as everyone's looking at, at uh, something different. Uh, as Lauren mentioned, Dr. Megan Dudney is doing the above ground pathology part of this project. Uh, Dr. Dudney, Thanks for joining us. Let's. I know we're only a year into this, but uh, what are we looking at as far as uh, your section here? So we have been following several different diseases that we thought may or may not be a problem, but wanted to just make sure that if there were problems with some of these things unexpectedly, that we would be able to then come up with maybe some ideas on how to better control them in these uh different treatments. So we have been monitoring over the last year, uh, well, since last March, greasy spot, uh, sooty mold, melanose, HLB symptoms, uh, and then the canker. We've also been collecting leaves for actual doing uh, liberobacter presence within the leaves. However, we don't have the results back from those yet because of the whole uh, shutdown has really slowed us down a little bit. So we're, we're in the process of getting those finished. But unfortunately for today, I don't have those results. Uh, the first big question I'm sure everybody has in mind is, has there been any HLB symptoms cited? And so far in not any of the treatments, including you know, the control, we haven't seen anything yet. That probably speaks well to our area sort of management, but, uh, you know, it doesn't allow us to see any treatments in terms of HLB symptoms in these trees or any differences amongst the treatments. Uh, we also haven't seen much sooty mold. We saw a little bit sort of starting late last year here and there, uh, but only in the bag treatments. And that's kind of where I expected to have the most sooty mold because sooty mold is, you know, as an organism that feeds off piercing, sucking insect frass or uh, leavings, and uh, uh, it then colonizes that and allows, or the honeydew, and it allows the uh, the fungus to grow. And so, inside the bags, it's a little bit harder to, uh, from what I understand from Dr. Diepenbrock, that, to, to control those piercing, sucking insects. So that, so we have seen a little bit inside the bags, but really very little. I thought we might see more, so I'm, I'm pleased to say that we haven't had too much problem with that. We've had no melanose. However, we did see greasy spot in just about every treatment. Uh, looks like this might have come in from the, just the area and uh, equally affected most treatments, at least uh, based on an incidence. I haven't had a chance to go through the data and look and see if one one uh, treatment or another is more severely affected. Um, However, I have had that opportunity with our canker. We started to see canker, if I remember correct, memory serves me well, in I think late summer. So in, in first sighting was uh, late July, early August, and then it got worse from there. So just about majority of our unbagged treatments do have at least some little smattering of canker. 
However, when we look at the treatments um, in terms of both the proportion of the, the leaves that we, we evaluated for canker, we see a definite difference among the treatments. So as you might imagine, so we looked at this both in October and in January, sort of sort of seeing a sort of summation in October of the season, sort of where we're going in the next season in January. And we see the greatest proportion of trees or leaves that we evaluated uh, up to about 50% in both the control and the reflective mulch treatments ha had, uh, had canker on them. We had fewer leaves, surprisingly, in January for both of these treatments, uh, about 30% of the control leaves and about 35% of the uh, reflective mulch ones. Um, and I suspect that's because the badly affected leaves sort of came off in the winter stresses uh, those those leaves would have come off more easily and therefore they probably fell, uh, leaving us with fewer fewer leaves uh, in proportion. So something like canker will cause leaf leaf uh, fall just like a greasy spot would. The kaolin was sort of our in-between treatment uh, in terms of proportion. We saw about 20 to 25 percent of those leaves uh, had canker on them. And then happily in the bags, we saw almost nothing under 10 percent. Uh, maybe under even 5%, and not a really large difference amongst the two uh, time points. When we look at the severity, the severity is the same way. In the bags, we have a very low level of disease, maybe one or two lesions per leaf. If there are lesions on the uh, kaolin treatment, again, we see a lower number of lesions per leaf. And on the um, control and the mulch treatments, we were about the same, and we saw fairly severe canker, probably uh, 15 to 20% of the leaf surface area being being affected. So fairly severe canker on, on those particular treatments. Oh, that's very interesting research. Now, Lauren said something about um, citrus leaf miner. We, we saw some issues with that. Yes. Um, I'm not sure which treatments had the worst leaf miner problems, but when we looked in terms of control and mulch, those two have the highest canker, which makes me suspect that perhaps leaf miner was particularly bad in those treatments. The kale and clay, we had that sort of intermediate level. And so I, I'm not thinking that the kaolin probably had a direct effect on the canker, but it may have either slowed down the uh, ability of the bacteria to get into the leaves by sort of plugging openings or perhaps deterred the leaf miner from, from getting into the trees or getting into the leaves and therefore didn't allow canker to get in there as easily. It's, it's interesting that we ha saw that many results after just one year and both impeded by the COVID-19 situation. Um, it doesn't mean we won't see some of these pop up as we continue to look at this, look at this uh, project, right? No, I, I'm thinking that, you know, the longer those bags are there, the more chances we are to have some of those piercing sucking insects inside the bags. Um, so perhaps we'll see an increase in sooty mold over time. Melanosis is really a disease of either, you know, we didn't get a freeze this year, so uh, that, that was into our benefit. But uh, as you get a greater chance of twigs dying as just being present until their natural lifespan, you know, we may see an increase in, in melanose over time. Greasy spot obviously is present, uh, probably coming in from the grove, surrounding groves, uh, because it moves very easily on the air. Uh, but it'll be very interesting to see if something like the kale and clay, perhaps slowing greasy spot down, perhaps the bags will slow it down. 
Yeah, it could be a bit, uh, in the in the reverse. You know, the bags could create such a nice environment for greasy spot that it goes gangbusters. I hope not, actually. Uh, but it is very interesting to see that, you know, we do have canker um, being slowed down by the bags. And that is a big win as far as I'm concerned. HLB is sort of that wild card. It could be that we're at that pre-symptomatic stage and we do have liver bacter in the trees and we just can't see it yet. Uh, I'm very curious in this next year to see where we start to see the first symptoms popping up. Um, And I'm really hoping it's not within the bags or on reflective mulch, but you just never know. It would be very gratifying to see that all of the trees in the controls become HLV symptomatic and none of the other treatments that we're trying. But, uh, you know, realistically, that's unlikely. It's going to be, you know, different proportions of each one. Absolutely. We're looking forward to those results as we move along here as well. Again, uh, looking at the above ground pathology of the Young Citrus Project, Dr. Megan Dudney, thank you for your time. You're welcome. So that's the above ground pathology. We are going to go below the soil now, looking at below ground pathology. And uh, as Lauren mentioned, that is Dr. Evan Johnson, uh, who's a research plant pathologist. Uh, Dr. Johnson, you're, you're doing some very interesting stuff here, and that is kind of monitoring the roots the aspect of monitoring the roots in itself is pretty cool what you guys are doing. Explain how you are doing this. Yeah, so these are young plantings. Um, they're young trees, so we can't do a lot of destructive sampling. So what we actually do is we put these clear tubes that we call mini rhizotrons. We kind of bury them underneath the tree where the root system is going to grow underneath the drippers or right underneath the trunk. Uh, depending on the irrigation system. And then we have a scanner that fits down this tube and we can take images at different depths, at uh, three different depths underneath the tree to look monthly, basically what roots are growing, what roots are dying. So we can see the dynamics of that root system and how it's affected by either the, the management strategy itself, such as the mulch or by pathogens like Phytophthora. Now, what have you guys seen anything already from this uh, study? I know it's very early, but... Yeah, so very early on in the main trial, we're not seeing um, huge differences yet because the roots are just starting to grow around the tube. So we're just, we're starting to see, kind of really see the roots develop in some of these trees as they grow from that early planting stage. Um, but we do have a little side trial where we're looking specifically at the interaction of mulch with the reflective mulch with Phytophthora, where we actually inoculated with mulch. And we look at the mulch versus non-mulch and then drip versus microjet irrigation, because we think this may be a major problem that we could face in this situation. And we're definitely seeing that that reflective mulch produces a nice moist environment that is really beneficial for Phytophthora, especially with that um, dripper. So that we're seeing far less root growth there, and that's because Phytophthora um, infects those roots. And so now we're figuring out, we're looking at how we can layer on Phytophthora management and if that can compensate for some of these effects. What's the goal of this project, right, is to find out the good and bad things that could be happening with several of these practices to make sure that we can get the most modern um uh, advice for growers. Yeah, yeah. One of the big things is you know we need a lot of these new tools to protect the tree against HLB, which is the biggest stress that we you know the biggest threat that these new plantings face. But we may be introducing environments, changing the the environment, like with the mulch, where you have a, a different moisture environment for the pathogens, root pathogens like Phytophthora, that could make it worse. And we want to know 
you know, what secondary problems might we be creating with these techniques? And then how do we manage it so that we can still maintain the positive effects that we're getting for HLB? The other things you guys are looking at here with the bags and the clay, is there is there anything you expect or hypothesize, uh, you know, especially keeping an eye out for in, in this trial as we go along here? Is there something you think will happen? Well, one of the things um, that we think, and this is based off of a lot of historical data, including uh, Christopher Vincent's data on kale and clay, is we actually expect the tree to perform a little bit better as far as um, growth with the the shading that the kale and clay in the bags produce. And so we're actually looking at that to see if there's any actual benefit to root function and root growth, the, the root establishment in these young plantings. Because my expectation, as I said, the mulch I would expect to be somewhat detrimental if Phytophthora is present. Um, but the bags and the kale and clay, because they provide that shading that helps the tree physiologically, um, we may actually see improved uh, root growth and root function. And it's really too early to say, but the one thing I can say is the trees with the bags on them are one of the first sets of trees where we have actually seen root growth going around the tree. So they're one of the kind of the early onset growth. And whether that continues, we have to wait and see. Right. Yeah. Something that we need to see more time on. But that, but that's interesting. I wonder why the early growth is there for the bag. Um, well, we, we think it's, and this is based off of, again, some of Christopher Vincent's uh, data with the clay, is it reduces the sunlight that directly hits the leaves, especially in those hot summer, hot uh, midday periods. In full sunlight, the, the tree may stop producing sugars for the middle sunniest part of the day. And with that shading, it can continue to photosynthesize and produce sugars during that time. So it will basically produce more food for root establishment. Yeah. And we've talked about on this podcast before how shade, uh, the shade research going on um, helps several different ways, even different colors of shade. So that could be something as well. Uh, this is very exciting. Um, how many years, especially for young citrus, how many years does it take for some of this stuff to, to really get a good judgment on what works and what doesn't work? Is it kind of like three years like we talked on some of the other issues? Um, well, it depends what we're looking at. For the root establishment, um, it can be, you know, three years we should have a good idea as far as are there beneficial or negative effects from any of these treatments compared to our standard practices with the microjet uh, sprinklers and then the open canopy. So by three years, we should have enough root establishment that we can really kind of compare them and see where they're performing. And at that point, we probably want to do a little bit of destructive sampling where we actually also look at the structural root system to see how well it's establishing in these different environments. But at some point, you know, because the root establishment continues until the tree is a full-sized tree. And at some point with the reflective mulch, that reflective mulch is only going to last so long. And then we're probably going to transition to microjet uh, sprinklers. And so to have some of the information that would really be interesting from a production standpoint, we are probably going to need to push this out even further and hopefully be able to follow it once like the bags and the mulch hit their endpoint and they're actually no longer having their effect. But how does the tree adapt to the change in management as it moves away from those, the mulch and the bags. Very good. Focusing his efforts below ground in the soil. Again, Dr. Evan Johnson, uh, research plant pathologist. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. 
Okay, so that's the pathology both above and below ground looking at this project. Uh, for the irrigation and nutrition, we're going to go over to Dr. Davey Kadeon-Pikini, like Lauren mentioned. Uh, Davey, first and foremost, thanks for joining me. And second, uh, nutrition-wise, you're kind of looking at unifying this, right? So we don't have any variation? Yes, that's accurate. Uh, so what we are doing is that uh, we are using, uh, traditionally, some of those systems used for irrigation, but what we are doing is we are using uh, controlled release fertilizers or slowly release fertilizer sources that take about five to six months to be used up by the trees. So we are applying those fertilizers uniformly across all the treatments to make sure that we have uniform response among those trees. Because, as you know, we are using different treatments. So to be able to understand or to appreciate what's going on in all those kinds of practices, making sure that the nutrition is similar among all the treatments. So I'm putting the same amount of nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, and calcium, magnesium, and micronutrients like manganese, boron, and zinc to make sure all those are unified across all the treatments. So essentially, that's what we are doing. Yeah, very good. It's a, that's an important part. Um, when it comes to the irrigation side of this, though, uh, you're going to be looking at the different management on these different types, right? Yeah, exactly. So what we are doing on the irrigation part we are looking at all those treatment sources. We are using reflective mulch. We don't expect any inputs of water from rainfall. So that is very important because that tells us that we can manage water only from irrigation sources. But now where we don't use reflective mulch, where we have the other practices like where we are applying kaolin clay where, or where we are using tree defenders or where we are using just trees and getting some insecticide, in those kinds of areas where we don't have any reflective mulch, the trees get water from irrigation and also from rainfall. So what we have essentially done is to put uh, props or soil moisture sensors that go all the way from the top of the ground and in four-inch increments all the way to about 48 inches. So we are tracking salinity to see if the fertilizers change in terms of movement or whether they leach out so quickly, depending on the management. And then we're also checking the soil moisture to see whether the practice we are doing improves the water storage within the root zone and below, and whether we are losing most of the water beyond the root zone. So we want to understand that as well. And then another measurement that those probes are doing, they're measuring temperature. Because there's an argument that when you use some of these practices, like the reflective mulch, you improve uh, a lot of below ground life. So you improve root growth, you improve um, a lot of activities by microbes. So we want to make sure we capture the soil temperature changes and dynamics related to that below this uh, soil surface. So we are also measuring soil temperature in four inch increments all the way to four eight inches, which is a very good thing. Now, I, we've mentioned this a couple times with uh, everyone who's talked already, and you know we're only a year into this, and we had COVID complications. So uh, have we learned anything yet, or are we still waiting to see, you know, this is kind of long-term when you look at irrigation and nutrition? Yeah, so uh, with irrigation, it's kind of hard right now to come up with a consistent pattern. But one thing that I can say is that uh, we might be able to catch those practices that we are conservative water. But right now, like for the past one year, I haven't been able to, to nail down a consistently, uh, like a consistent performer, well, which management style, for example, retains more water or which one leaches more nutrients. 
because of the short duration. I think Lorraine suggested that we extend by another year for more or less to make sure that we, we have at least two-year data. I think that would be, be the one to give me a better hand on which practices promote better soil salinity, better uh, soil temperature values, and also better soil moisture storage. So for now, we have, uh, have not managed to conclude yet. So uh, I think those trends will be generated in the coming months. Well, you're dealing with the mother of all variables in Mother Nature, so uh, you're going to need at least uh, one or two, maybe even three seasons before you can come up with anything. Exactly. That's very correct. Actually, for citrus being a perennial crop, we typically prefer about three years. So because a year is more or less a season in citrus. It's unlike the other raw crops like tomatoes or corn that you know mature in three months, four months. You're able to nail down the seasons by say fall, spring, and summer. But for citrus, you need the whole year to be able to account for blooming, you know, uh, fruit maturation, fruit formation, and all that kind. Those kinds of um, stages of the tree and vegetative growth. Yeah. So you're right. We will need about uh, two to three years to be able to come up with better and concrete um, uh, responses that we can conclude and pass on to growers. Very good. Looking at the irrigation and nutrition side of this Young Trees Project and joining us virtually today, Dr. Davey Kadiampikeni. Thank you so much for your time, sir. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. So that's the irrigation and nutrition aspect of this. Uh, All of this comes down to uh, how the trees actually grow, which with these different systems... Uh, we believe can make these things grow differently. And this is where we introduced Dr. Christopher Vincent. So in this project, you, you kind of have the ultimate goal here, and that is looking how these young trees grow with these different treatments, right? And, th- and that's a, a standard thought here is they should affect some way that the tree grows, right? Yes. So each of the treatments that we're assessing is expected to impact pests, management uh, and and disease transmission, but they're also expected to directly influence tree growth. So what we're assessing here is is the fact that uh, each of these treatments impacts the distribution of light within the canopy. The bags shade the canopy and they also enhance uh, temperature and relative humidity, which are expected to increase growth. The reflective mulch redistributes light, so more light would be coming from below into the center of the canopy, so that may enhance growth. The particle films sort of do a little bit of both. They shade the outside of the canopy, and they also redistribute light further into the canopy. So each of these is expected to enhance growth in some way, but we're, we're curious in addition to whether they do that, uh, how they compare with each other in terms of how they impact growth. That's very interesting. And now I, I obviously with monitoring growth, uh, you're going to need several years before you can look at this, right? Yes. Citrus trees grow quite slowly. And so it takes us time to really confidently detect differences in growth. So we haven't seen any differences yet. Uh, but we didn't expect to see differences this early. Any speculation here? I mean, I know uh, scientists, you really try to wait for the data, but any speculation here on, um, you know, just looking at this outside the box, reflective mulch puts more light into the canopy. I mean, do you do you expect that we'll see some bigger growth out of the reflective mulch treatments? I definitely expect for all of the treatments to improve growth over the control. What I 
can't really say thus far is how they would compare with each other. So, so I think that all of them will enhance growth. We have data from other studies that where there are controls, where each of these treatments has increased growth. However, they've never been compared directly with each other. And the proportion with which they'll, they'll enhance growth isn't, isn't really known. So as I would say, in general, they are expected to each be positive. Whether we'll see differences among them in terms of to what degree they're, they're helping growth, I, I really can't speculate. Yeah, that'll be the interesting part to see. When it comes to exclusion bags, how would they increase growth? How would they help the tree grow a little bit better? Fernando Alvarez's group in Immokalee has has done a fair amount of work on this already. So, so citrus trees respond positively to relative humidity. So the, the more humid the air is, the less water they use. And so they're able to maintain uh, their stomata open throughout a longer proportion of the day. Also, the bags would shade somewhat. Uh, I, don't, I don't remember the exact proportion with which they produce shade, but, but some moderate shade is also beneficial to citrus trees. So those two things, they, they keep a warmer night temperature, higher relative humidity, and a moderate shading. And so among those things uh, altogether, those effects should enhance growth, and, and they have enhanced growth. Uh, in Dr. Alvarez's and, and other people's studies as well. Yeah, we've talked about shade before on this podcast, so that makes sense. And 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 this is your aspect of this uh, research is is the integral part here because if if all this stuff uh, you know helps the tree be healthier and 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 fend off uh, you know issues, that's great. But if it also doesn't help the tree grow very well, that's I mean that's important. So we need to we need this is something that needs to be monitored as well. Right. And, and growth precedes yield. So obviously the goal for everybody here is enhanced yield. And, and so we, we assume that increased growth in the beginning means earlier yield and, and perhaps more yields down the road. Um, how are you guys monitoring the growth of these trees? Is it just specifically by, you know, visual? Are, are you visually seeing these trees? Or are you also monitoring a little bit more scientific than that? So what we're doing is not particularly technical in terms of monitoring tree growth. We're just, we, we measure the, the canopy volume. We just do that with a meter stick, right? Just how tall is the tree? How far across is the canopy within the row and, and across the row? And, and from that, we, we measure a, or estimate a canopy volume. We also measure canopy density. So that's, you know, the, the amount of leaf coverage within that volume. And then we also measure trunk girth and so that's just the, the change in trunk cross-sectional area over time, just, just by measuring with, with a set of calipers uh, in the same location on the trunk over time. And so with all those things together, we get a pretty good picture of, of growth overall. I think that's a, a, a more detailed version of what the growers call the eyeball test, right? <laughs> well, my, my PhD advisor said that as physiologists, we, our job is to come up with profound and detailed explanations of the obvious. So uh, I feel like I feel like that's exactly right. <laughs> Very good. Again, Christopher Vincent, we appreciate your time. Awesome. Thank you, Taylor. Well, again, it sounds like a very comprehensive research project that everybody will be pitching in on for their specific areas. And we'll go back to Lauren here. Lauren, what what started you guys on this path? What what made you want to look at this? Well, this is really thanks to growers asking questions. Um, 
when I started here in 2018, I noticed they were using these tools. I thought it was really interesting. Um, and in the first few grower meetings I went to, I had several growers approach me and ask me different questions about how they could manage this when they're using this. So, for example, if I'm using a reflective mulch, I can't use oil-based adjuvants because it's going to break down the reflective mulch coating. Oil on other oil-based products does not turn out good in the long run. Um, and then I noticed that some of my colleagues were also getting questions about, hey, how much irrigation do I need to use if I'm using this reflective mulch? Or if I'm going to use the bags, do I need to do this? So there's a lot of questions out there. And you know the growers, they do a lot of work independently. And we learn a ton from our conversations with them. And this became an area of need. Based on those conversations, we all realized that they could really use this information. And so we worked with them to see where their issues were, where their concerns were, what kind of other problems they had or that they noticed so that we can keep an eye out for them. And, you know, for example, one of those problems is there's a gentleman who has a, a grove not too far away from where I live. It's all planted with reflective mulch. The trees look lovely, but there's huge holes in the reflective mulch. And so I was asking him, you know, what is that from? Is that from a car or it didn't look like a car? He told me, well, the cranes like to poke at the reflective mulch probably when they hear the irrigation turn on. And so that's one of the things we're like, okay, well, we need to watch out for that and see if that is, is a, an issue we can maybe solve in some manner. And so trying to think of these things that are going to impact the growers, they, they need to get a return on their investment to make it worth worth their time and money. That's exciting to hear. And thanks again to all of the researchers helping out on this project. And of course, Assistant Professor of Entomology and Citrus Extension Specialist and Project Lead, Lauren Diepenbrock. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, you're very welcome. It's nice talking to you. And thank you for listening to this episode of the All In for Citrus podcast. Remember to follow along on social media for National OJ Day on May 4th and check out that tip of the week at citrusindustry.net. We'll see you next month. Thanks for listening to this month's All In for Citrus podcast from the University of Florida Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences statewide citrus team in partnership with Southeast Agnet Radio Network.